There are 66 books in the Bible. And the, the theme that runs all throughout the Bible is a loving God, a holy and just God's plan, <clears throat> excuse me, to reconcile wayward and sinful man. That's the theme that runs from the beginning of Genesis, <clears throat> excuse me, through the end of Re- Revelation. And I'm not sure this example will resonate with all of you, but I hope it will for a few of you. How many of you ever watched Lost? Or there, come on, admit it, raise them high. Lost junkies. <clears throat> Lost, kind of. <clears throat> Hello, Sylvia. I've got a <clears throat> serious problem going on here. Lost has a continual theme from beginning until end. We're not quite sure what that theme is. Unlike the Bible, we know what the theme is. <laughs> Are you with me? The Bible, we know how it ends. We know the end of the story. Lost, we really don't know the end of the story. But Lost, every week, it has characters that come and go. And it has a mini theme every week. It has one overarching theme throughout the whole show that will unfold someday. But it has different themes every week. And that's very similar in a weird way to the Bible. That the Bible has one consistent theme. The characters change with every book. And there are many themes, many plots in each book of the Bible. Unlike Office. Does anybody watch Office? There is nothing going on there. It's the same people week after week with the same stupid jokes. I'm going to try to recover this message. Last week, or the last two weeks, we covered chapter 25, which we saw the death of Abraham. Um, Abraham died at 176 years old. We saw Isaac... um, and Rebecca get pregnant. Um, Rebecca was barren like her mother-in-law Sarah was. Rebecca's husband, Abraham's son, Isaac, cried out to the Lord and said, God, please help my wife conceive. Please make her fertile. And God did. After 20 years of being barren, Rebecca conceived. Rebecca had horrible pain inside of her beyond the average <clears throat> pregnancy. It said that, that she was, the, the two she had twins, and they were struggling inside of her. That she was, they were striving. They were, they were crushing her. She cried out to the Lord and said, Why, God, why am I feeling so much pain? And God said that the two boys that are in you are striving. It means that they are, they are fighting. There's enmity between them, and there will be enmity between these two boys. There will be strife between them from the day they're born until the day they die. And then he also said that, that the younger will rule over the older. And that the older will serve the younger. Now this is weird because tra- in tradition, the older has the birthright. The older rules over the younger. So we saw at the end of chapter 25 last week that Esau, who is the older boy that had the birthright, was a hunter. He was an outdoors kind of guy. He was a kill it and grill it kind of guy. His younger brother Jacob was more of the, of the inside. He liked dealing with things in the house, in the tent. He was a cook. And Esau came from killing something and eating, and, and not eating, but killing something, and came in and said to Jacob, I'm starving. Feed me. And Jacob says, sell me your birthright. Give me your birthright, and I'll give you some food. Esau gave his birthright to his younger brother Jacob. Jacob gave Esau food. 
Esau was satisfied, and the last words that we heard in chapter 25 is Esau despised his birthright. That's where we ended. So we pick up today in chapter 26, and it's the only chapter in the entire Bible that focuses solely on Isaac. Isaac is Abraham's son, and he is the father of Esau and Jacob. Isaac is a man like you and I, if you know Christ, who was chosen in Christ before the foundations of the earth. He was chosen in Christ before the foundations of the world. He was also a man like you and I that he walked with an imperfect faith. He walked by faith, not by sight, but he stumbled along the way. So he was a man that had an imperfect faith, but he also had a strong witness. He had a strong witness. This man had a passionate desire to honor and glorify God and also to be a witness for those around him. We're going to walk through chapter 26, and we're going to walk through it a verse at a time and just kind of answering some questions and explaining it as we go. It is a narrative, and it's designed to be taught as a narrative, so we're going to walk through it as a narrative. So turn with me to chapter 26, verse 1. Um, who's got a pew Bible that has it open to Genesis? Diane, what page is that on? 20. If you don't have a Bible, there are pew Bibles there. And it's on page 20 of your pew Bible. And it's Genesis chapter 26, verse 1. Now there was a famine in the land. Folks, this is an economic downturn. This is a recession that is going on in Isaac's time. This is an agrarian society where people are farmers and they're ranchers. And water is precious. Without water, they can't feed their animals. If they can't feed their animals, the animals die. If the animals die, there's no food. If there's no water, they can't water the crops. The crops don't grow. There's no food. This is an economic downturn. Besides the former famine that was in the days of Abraham, and Isaac went to Gerar to Abimelech, king of the Philistines. Now, there was another famine over a hundred years ago that Abraham and Sarah went through. And one thing's for certain that in each of our lifetimes, there's going to be at least one economic downturn. Economies are cyclical, and we are guaranteed to live through at least one, if not more. So Abraham and Sarah went through a famine some hundred years ago, and when they went through that famine, Abraham ran to who? He ran to Abimelech. Now, Abimelech that Abraham ran to is not the same one that Isaac is running to. That was over 100 years apart. Abimelech is an office, if you will. It's like Caesar is in the New Testament. It's not a person. It's more of an office. It's like president is today. So Isaac went to Abimelech. And what's interesting to me here, what stands out to me, is that there's a famine. Isaac doesn't know what to do. He is a rancher, he is a farmer, he's an agrarian, and he runs to, no, he goes straight to the most powerful man on the planet. Instead of going to the Lord, he goes directly to Abimelech. The story continues. And the Lord appeared to him and said, Do not go down to Egypt. Dwell in the land which I shall tell you. Why do you think God told him not to go to Egypt? Egypt is notorious for being uh, 
prosperous. There's water. It's fertile. It's a place where Isaac could go to continue to raise his animals, to grow his crops. And God said, don't go to Egypt. Stay in the land that I'm going to show you. Folks, this was a major trial for Isaac and his family. This was a major trial for anybody that was in the territory of Gerar. And the easy thing to do would be to go to Egypt. The easy thing to do would be to go to Egypt. And God did not want him to go to Egypt. God had a plan. He wanted Isaac to go through the trial so that the Lord could make himself known, so that the Lord could solve the problem and and receive the glory, not Isaac. I don't know about you, but when I'm in trials, I have a tendency to, I don't like trials. I don't like them. They're not fun. Whether it be finances, whether it be health, whether it be a relationship, I don't like trials. Am I odd? Do you all like trials? No. My tendency is to want to run from them. And what I've experienced, when I run from a trial, what the Lord oftentimes does is he brings back that same trial or a similar trial because there's something that he wants to teach me that I ran from, that I wasn't willing to stay and endure. Oftentimes I'll think that the grass is greener on the other side and I'll flee. I want to tell you this, though. It's not a sin to move, okay? It's, it wasn't necessarily going to be a sin for Isaac to go to Egypt until the Lord told him not to go to Egypt. We got a couple of personal examples in our own life. We lived in Denver when we first got married in 1980. Yes, that's a long time ago. Not as long as some. Uh, we lived in Fort Collins, and we moved to Denver in 1983. And we always knew we wanted to get back up here. So from 83 to 93, we were in Denver. And um, there was all kinds of stuff that we were involved in that we should not have been involved in. We were not, let's just say that we weren't honoring the Lord with our lives. And the Lord started getting a hold of my heart. And he, and he showed me, not in an audible way, not in a written way, but in a way that only the word through the power of the Holy Spirit can direct you that it was time to get out of Denver. It was time to go back to Fort Collins and to join a church where we can grow. So in many ways, we were in a trial in Denver, even though it was a self-induced trial. It was something that I had brought upon us. But we left, and that was honoring the Lord. Another example would be we live in Windsor. We live in New Windsor. We live on Crescent Drive. And when we, we rent the house, when we started renting it three years ago, we did a lease with option to buy. I know I'm probably giving you too many details. But we were, we were paying X amount of rent. And then the economy started going down. And the X amount of rent that we're paying is about $300 more than what the market would bear. Right? We can move somewhere else and save $300. Now, money is tight for us. $300 is significant. And... We sought the Lord on it, talked to our landlord. He wasn't willing to reduce it. First, we said, you know, let's, let's, go, to, let's go to Chris and see if he'll reduce it. Not Chris Hewitt, not Chris Richards, just to be clear. Uh, um, the evil landlord. Um, this guy's a nice guy. He's a believer. Um, but, but he needed that full rent because he's underwater. 
So I said, honey, what do we do? Let's, let's pray about it. And we both had a conviction that we were more called to our neighborhood than we were released from the $300 a month. You know what I'm talking about? So it's, tr- I shouldn't have told you the amount. Sorry about that. It's not a big deal at the end of the day. But 300 bucks is a big deal for us on a monthly basis. But we really feel like the Lord didn't want to remove us from that financial trial because he had called us to Crescent Drive. And we are so excited to be a part of Crescent Drive, the club, the club. Let's continue. Verse 3, God said, sojourn in this land. In other words, stay in this land temporarily, he says to Isaac. And I will be with you, and I will bless you. This is God gently assuring Isaac that the promise that he made to his father, which is an unconditional promise, will be fulfilled through Isaac and his offspring. It's God reminding Isaac Stay here. I will be with you. If I call you to stay in a difficult situation, I'll give you the strength to endure. If you remove yourself from this difficult situation, it could get ugly. For to you and your offspring, I will give these lands, and I will establish the oath that I swore to Abraham your father. I love this. I love this. In Genesis 22, remember, after Abraham was obedient, when God told him to slaughter Isaac, and he took Isaac up to the mountain and had the knife raised to kill the chosen son. And then suddenly a ram, a spotless ram, appeared, and he didn't have to kill his son. But because of his obedience, his willingness to obey God, God made this covenant unconditional. That it is a promise, it is an oath, that God swore that he would do these things to Abraham, for Abraham, and for his offspring. And these are the things that he swore. He says in verse 4, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven, and will give to your offspring all these lands, and to your offspring all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. There's three parts to this promise. Number one, there will be many descendants that come from you. Many descendants that come from Abraham and Isaac. Two is, is that I promise I'll give you the land. The land is for you and your descendants. Three, and most important, some of you might have this in your Bible, where it says, from your seed. My version says, offspring. And, the, and the, the promise that was made to Abraham in 22 is that from your seed will come the one that will crush your enemies. And that goes back to Genesis 3.15, where God told, Abraham, that God told Adam and Eve that he will crush the serpent's head. Folks, that's the most glorious news on the planet, that the victory has already been won, that the victory has been won, and that he's had a plan from day one from day one, to conquer sin, to conquer death. And he is bringing, he's continued to bring this promise through, to fulfillment, through the line of Abraham, and now through the line of Isaac. And he says, he's going to do this because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. And somebody came to me with this verse 
a few months ago and said, what does this mean? Because there, there wasn't law then. There wasn't written law. There wasn't Ten Commandments. Well, there was, the, the law was a spoken law. What it meant was God's, what, what God told Abraham to do. So Abraham was obedient to killing his son Isaac. And because of that, God is bringing forth this unconditional promise. Verse 7, when the men of the place asked him about his wife, now he's in Gerar, he's met Abimelech, he is staying in Gerar, where Abimelech is king over Gerar, he's not going to Egypt, and then the men of this place, the men of Gerar, asked him about his wife, and he said, she's my sister. For he feared to say, my wife, thinking, lest the men of the place should kill me because of Rebekah, because she was attractive in appearance. Sound familiar? Like father, like son. Like father, like son. Let me, let me just back up a sec, though, because I, like father, like son, Isaac was laying on that, on that altar, on that table, when dad was raising the knife. You imagine how that marked Isaac? That he saw his dad's faith, that even his own son's life was more important than, than not obeying God. So Isaac saw his dad model faith, and he saw his dad, or heard of his dad, walking in fear. Now Abraham told a half lie, as if that's any better. Abraham lied and said that this is my sister, not my wife. Well, it was his sister. It was his half-sister. And Abraham did it twice. And now we find Isaac doing the same thing. Isaac lied to protect himself. Folks, faith is confidence. Fear is cowardice. Okay, we are confident, confident when we understand and believe God's promises as spoken through his word. And there are, there are some things in my life that I'm fearful over. I'll just tell you right now. And I've got to confess it continually. And God has made, while we're in the flesh, there's going to be different fears that come up from time to time. But know that we can, we can trust every promise that's in this word. Every promise that's in this word. And when we are operating in fear, what we're saying is we're not trusting the Lord. Here's what Isaac should have said. If he was operating on the confidence of the promise, he should have said, She's my wife. I work for him. You touch my wife. And can I remind you of Sodom and Gomorrah? Can I remind you of what happened in Sodom and Gomorrah? That's confidence. Not weaseling around like he did to protect his backside. He lost his faith in the midst of a giant obstacle. And he took things into his own hands. Verse 8, when he had been there a long time, when he had been in Gerar a long time, Abimelech, king of the Philistines, looked out of a window and saw Isaac laughing. King James says, sporting with Rebekah, his wife. Okay, folks, you need to look this one up yourself. It's, it's R-rated. What, what Abimelech saw Isaac and Rebekah doing are what only husband and wife should be doing. At the very least, it was making out. And it was, uh, 
it was, it was obvious to Abimelech that it was man and woman. So Abimelech called Isaac and said, Behold, she is your wife. How could you say she is your sister? What are you doing? Isaac said to him, Because I thought, lest I die because of her. Abimelech said, What is this you have done to us? One of the people might easily have lain with your wife, and you would have brought guilt upon us. So Abimelech warned all the people, saying, Whoever touches this man or his wife shall surely be put to death. Now, Abimelech had a certain level of morality. He apparently knew that it was wrong to sleep with another man's wife. He's lost. He doesn't know the Lord. But there's a certain level of morality. Also, he knows the reputation of Isaac's God, and this man is scared. And Isaac sowed in the land and reaped in some in the same year a hundredfold. The Lord blessed him, and the man became rich and gained more and more until he became very wealthy. We're in a recession right now. We're in an economic downturn. Anybody here have a hundredfold return on their portfolio or their real estate? Because I want to know about if you do. I want to give a caution in these two verses. These two verses are abused. They're abused worldwide. And it's the prosperity gospel that comes out of this. You've seen the guys on TV? Sow $10 to my ministry and you'll get a hundredfold. The guy's usually got a handkerchief wiping his face. He's got a suit on. They preach this message primarily to poor people primarily to inner city, primarily overseas. And it is the most dangerous, most um, despicable message on the planet that they're preaching the gospel of prosperity, that if you sow, you will in fact reap. If you sow money, you will. If you give money, you're going to make money. Folks, there is no guarantee that we're going to be blessed monetarily. There's no guarantee that we're going to be blessed with good health. There's no guarantee that we're going to be blessed with kids that follow the Lord. And what happens when this prosperity message is preached is that when the people in the inner city are poor two years from now, when the people that are sick are sick two years from now, do you think they get on their knees and worship God? No. They deny Him. They deny him because they think that they've been preached that God is a genie in a bottle. And all we do is we need something, we just rub the bottle. And that's not the God of the Bible. One other thing, being rich and being poor is neutral. It's neutral in God's eyes. There are righteous rich, there are righteous poor. Righteous rich typically are thankful, they're generous, and they're selfless. Righteous poor are typically thankful, they're generous, and they're doing everything they can to get out of their situation. There's unrighteous rich. There's unrighteous rich that that beat themselves on the chest and say, look what I've accomplished. They're building their kingdom. They're not generous. 
They're more concerned about retirement than they are building a kingdom. There's unrighteous poor. There's unrighteous poor that live in the entitlement society that we've created here in America. That, they are, that they're the victim mentality. That they're, that they're not willing to work hard, but they're willing to steal. So being rich and being poor is neutral. But God chose to bless Isaac this way. It's a partial fulfillment of the blessing that he gave Isaac, that he told him that he would do. But he's not told us that he's going to bless us financially. Not a guarantee at all. I love, here's the guarantee. It's in Ephesians 1.3. Here's the guarantee. You ready? Here's the blessing that's guaranteed for every one of you. It is the best news on the planet. It must be second best news because I already gave you the best news on the planet. Here it is, Ephesians 1.3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord, Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, that you will receive, if you know Jesus, every spiritual blessing is for you. It's unreserved, it's promised, it's unconditional. It is phenomenal news because if you know Jesus, there is nothing that you can do. There's nothing that can separate you from the love of God. Nothing at all. That every spiritual blessing belongs to you. Verse 14, he had possessions of flocks and herds and many servants so that the Philistines envied him. Now the Philistines had stopped and filled the earth, filled with earth all the wells that his father's servants had dug in the days of Abraham his father. Verse 16. And Abimelech said to Isaac, Go away from us, for you are much mightier than we. So Isaac departed from there and encamped in the valley of Gerar and settled there. And Isaac dug again the wells of water that had been dug in the days of Abraham his father, which the Philistines had stopped after the death of Abraham. And he gave them the names that his father had given them. But when Isaac's servants dug in the valley and found there a well of spring water, the herdsmen of Gerar quarreled with Isaac's herdsmen, saying, The water is ours. So Isaac called the name of the well Isaac, which means contention, because they contended with him. Then they dug another well, and they quarreled over that also. So he called its name Sitna, which means enmity or strife. And Isaac moved from there and dug another well, and they did not quarrel over it. So he called its name Rehoboth, which means room or broad place saying, For now the Lord has made room for us, and we shall be fruitful in the land. Okay, here's the trial. Here it comes. God told him to stay in the land of Gerar. And right out of the chutes, he prospers Isaac. Right out of the chutes, he prospers him. He sowed and he reaped a hundredfold. And then the trials start coming down. The other people are jealous because it's, a, it's, a, it's an economic downturn, folks. Things are not going well for people. It's an economic downturn. It says that the, that the other herdsmen, the Philistines, envied Isaac and his clan. And then Abimelech told them to get out of here. Abimelech was threatened, and he was also envious. Isaac kept moving peacefully with no argument. My goodness, he had the most going business in the entire land of Gerar. He is prospering when nobody else is prospering. 
And Abimelech says, leave. People are jealous. And what did Isaac do? He left. He left. He went to another piece of land, dug a well. The Philistines came, apparently followed him, and said, this is our well. Leave. What did Isaac do? He left. He went to another piece of land, dug a well. The Philistines came and filled the well in. Isaac left. Isaac had every right to these. This wasn't their land. These were wells that Isaac's dad's servants dug. If anybody deserved it, it was Isaac and his clan. If anybody deserved it, it was Isaac and his clan. There was a lot of work and a lot of resources lost. Isaac, it, it cost time. It probably cost lives. Water is, is more valuable then than capital is today in a new business. Because if you don't have water in an agrarian society, you don't grow crops, your animals die. These herdsmen, these Philistines that kept following him and, and destroying Isaac's li- livelihood are very much like the entitlement society that we live in today. You don't, how'd you get that? You don't deserve that? Give it to me. And if you don't give it to me, I'm going to ruin you. I'm going to ruin your character. I'm going to ruin your business. Isaac's, he was hurt in the pocketbook. But you know what he's doing here? When you see the end of this, I hope it's as much of an aha for you as it was to me, that he is preserving his witness like nobody else. He is preserving his witness. Isaac had the power, he had the strength, he had the right to retaliate. He didn't have to move. He didn't have to find new water. He could have stayed. Let's look at verse 23 together. So he is, he is in um, Rehoboth right now. And in verse 23 it says this, From there he went up to Beersheba. And Beersheba is about an eight-hour walk from Rehoboth. And I'm not 100% sure why he, why he went there. Because it seemed like everybody was leaving him alone where he was. But he went up to Beersheba, which was about eight hours from Rehoboth. I don't know how long it was between the time he settled in Rehoboth and he left for Beersheba, but we know that that's where he went. And the Lord appeared to him that same night, the same night that he arrived in the new place, the new digs, God appeared and said, I am the God of Abraham, your father. I am the God of Abraham, your father. Parents, men. Could, could God say that to your kids? Could he say, I am the God of Dan, your father. And then it was evident to your children, your grandchildren, your nieces and nephews, it was evident to them by your worship and by your lifestyle that you were sold out to this God of the Old Testament. Is it evident to people that see your life that it is God the Father of Kevin, 
of Susie, of Joey, of Doyle? I think it is. The people I know, I think it is. Ask that question of yourself. Is it evident? The Lord appeared to him and said, I am God. I am the God of Abraham, your father. And he says, then fear not, for I am with you and will bless you and multiply your offspring for my servant Abraham's sake. Isaac has got to be beat up. He has got to be beat up. He has been walking in peace. He's been kicked out. His wells have been, have been filled in. And he arrives, and the very first night, the Lord appears to him. And he says, fear not. No matter what's going on, fear not. I'm with you. I will bless you, and I will multiply your offspring. He is reiterating the promise he made to Abraham. That just because he's in these trials, God hasn't deserted him. And I can tell you, no matter what trial you're in, no matter what's going on, whether it be marriage, whether it be a wayward child, whether it be financial difficulties, whether it be health problems, fear not. First of all, God's sovereign. Remember God Elroy, the one that saw Hagar crying? He knows exactly what's going on. And that this, this life, is, it's a dot on the line of eternity. It's a dot. And that we will be in heaven someday where there's no suffering, there's no tears, there's no more crying. So Isaac is reassured. After he hears from the Lord, here's what he does in verse 25. So he built an altar there, and he called upon the name of the Lord and pitched his tent there. And there Isaac's servants dug a well. Get this. When did he worship? Those people still hate him. The Philistines still hate him. Abimelech still kicked him out. He still doesn't have water. He doesn't have the very capital that he needs to continue feeding his animals and growing his crops. What does he do? He worships the sovereign, faithful Lord, not having any idea if the Lord will ever reconcile those relationships, not having any idea if the Lord will ever provide water for his business. For it wasn't after he, after he worshipped at the altar, that's when Isaac's servants dug the well in verse 25. I want to encourage you, no matter what situation you're in, worship God. Worship God for who He is. Because He's faithful, He's trustworthy, know His character. When we start becoming people that only worship God when good things happen, yes, we need to worship then too. We become believers that are rubbing the genie's lamp. Just getting what we want. And God, you give me what we want, and then you're worthy of praise. No, he is worthy of praise no matter what's going on in your life. It doesn't matter what's going on. He is worthy of praise in our financial difficulties. He was worthy of praise when we had marriage issues. He is worthy of praise in any environment that's going on in your life. Please take lots of comfort and hope from that.
Verse 26. Dumbfounded. When Abimelech went to him from Gerar, Abimelech shows up. When Abimelech went to him from Gerar with Ahuzath, his advisor, and Philcal, the commander of his army, this guy brought his entire cabinet with him for some reason. Isaac said to them, Why have you come to me, seeing that you hate me and have sent me away from you? I'm sensing that Isaac's feelings have been hurt a bit. They've been hurt a bit. It's okay, we're human. We got feelings, some of us more than others. And they said back to Isaac, We see plainly that the Lord has been with you. So we said to ourselves, to each other, Let there be a sworn pact between us, between you, Isaac, and us. Let us make a covenant with you that you will do us no harm, just as we have not touched you and have, have done to you nothing but good and have sent you away in peace. You are now blessed of the Lord. Well, there's some fibs in here, I think, because I don't, it doesn't feel to me like they sent Isaac out in peace. Yes, they didn't touch him. They let him live. But they did anything but let him go in peace. They destroyed his livelihood. They kicked him out. They were envious. They were jealous of him. Is there a possibility that the hard times that you might be going through are not for you? Maybe for those that are watching you. Think about what, what he said here. Verse 28, we see plainly that the Lord has been with you. Into verse 29, you are now blessed of the Lord. They see evidence of something different in this man's life. Who in the world just keeps moving on when they can retaliate? When you've got the power to retaliate. Remember what the term meekness means? Jesus was called meek. Most of us guys would not be, want to be called meek. Hello there, meek Dan. I don't know if I'd like that. Here's what meek means. Meek means power under control. Jesus was the epitome of meekness because when he was on the cross, he had the power to jump off that cross and wipe those guys out. Isaac is a meek man. He had the power to get revenge. But he kept moving. And these people saw something different in Isaac. And they wanted to reconcile with him. Isaac could have leveraged this. He could have. He could have said, yep, let's reconcile. Let's sign that contract. First... I want my land back. I want you to redig my wells. And I want a public apology. Okay? We'll, we'll do an oath. But I want those first. Nope. Isaac did nothing of the sort. He did nothing of the sort. What he did is unbelievable. Verse 30 So he made them a feast. And they ate and drank. Feasts are reserved for the greatest celebrations in the Bible. The last two feasts that I observed was one where Abraham threw a feast when Isaac was weaned from Sarah. Ladies, is that something to celebrate? They, did, they, they feasted. The other feast was Lot invited the angels, the angels of the Lord in, and he prepared a feast for them. A feast is reserved for something special. And Isaac invited them in, and he threw a feast for them. In the morning they rose early and they exchanged oaths. 
And Isaac sent them on their way, and they departed from him in peace. Isaac modeled hospitality by bringing outsiders in. Outsiders that really could care less about Isaac. They just wanted to protect their own backside. But Isaac celebrated. Here it is, verse 32. That same day, Isaac's servants came and told him about the well. Remember that well that was dug after they worship, after he worshipped? Still didn't have water? Here it is, verse 32. That same day, Isaac's servants came and told him about the well that they had dug and said to him, we found water. Can you imagine how Isaac felt? He was worshiping the Lord in the bad times, and now the good times have come. And Isaac called that Sheboth, which means oath. Therefore, the name of the city is Beersheba to this day. And Beersheba means well of the oath. I wanted to share a couple scriptures with you. Romans 12, bless those who persecute you. Blessed do not curse them. Repay no evil for evil, but give thought to what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so, so far it is, depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. The Lord will deal with unbelievers that are in sin. God's given us a way to deal with each other when we're in sin. But it is not for us to take vengeance on those that are not in Christ. 1 Peter 2.12, keep your conduct among gentles, Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God in the day of visitation. Last two verses, we're gonna, we'll be touching base on this in a few weeks. When Esau was 40 years old, he took Judith, the daughter of Beri, the Hittite, to be his wife, and Basemath, the daughter of Elon, the Hittite, and they made life bitter for Isaac and Rebekah. I think the whole point, the reason that, that Moses, the author of Genesis, put it here is that we live, what God's Word says, is that there will be tribulation. There will be trials. It's a guarantee. And Isaac had just apparently escaped the trial. The Lord blessed him. He reconciled with his enemies. He's got capital, water for his business. And all of a sudden, his son marries the forbidden Hittite women. And we're going to see the consequences for that in a while. There's two questions I want you to consider. Are you worshiping the Lord in your trials? Are you worshiping the Lord in your trials? And two... How is your witness in your trials and your blessings? Are you being a witness in your trials or through your trials? And are you being a witness through the way the Lord has blessed you?